for those of us who have read Autobiography of a Yogi, which is how many of how many of you have read Autobiography of a Yogi? Raise your hand. Okay. If you haven't, go and buy it and start reading it today. And I'll give you a little preview. The very first line of Autobiography of a Yogi is the characteristic features of the Indian culture has long been the search for eternal verities and the concomitant guru-disciple relationship. That's how Master starts off his autobiography. So the, what India has brought to us is the search for eternal truth and the accompanying guru-disciple relationship. They go hand in glove. And we need to understand at Ananda, we follow a specific line of gurus ending in our guru master. But we need to understand that the guru-disciple relationship is the eternal mechanism God-ordained through which the soul will find, will find his way back to God. There is no other way. When Christ said, I am the truth, the way, and the life, and Christians today misinterpret it and say that he is the only way, well, he is the only way, but not in the body and name of Jesus, but in the guru-disciple relationship. That is the only way that we find freedom. And as Jyotish was saying, each soul in our individuality at the moment of our creation, and I don't mean our birth in this lifetime, but when our soul as an individual spark is struck off from that great ocean of awareness, that little drop, when that little drop separates, there is a God-ordained guru. And it isn't something we choose. It isn't something, oh, well, I went to this satsang, and they, this great thing happened, or that great thing happened, or I like the chanting, or whatever it might be. Once the master had a disciple who left him, and master wept, and he said he will never find God except through this vehicle. It wasn't personal. It wasn't like, I need him, I need disciples, any of that. He knew that he was the vehicle for that soul to find freedom through all eternity. There was one of Master's direct disciples was the center leader from Mexico City, Senor Cuaron. And he, uh, when he came to Master, Master welcomed him so lovingly. And he said, I lost sight of you for several lifetimes, but I'll never lose sight of you again. And who lost sight of who? You know, Master didn't lose sight of him. But in the, the path of Signor Cuaron, he, he lost sight of the guru, and we do, and we forget. Even in the poignant story in autobiography, when Babaji calls Lahiri, and he said, Lahiri, don't you recognize me? And Lahiri said, no. And he points to his little uh, meditation asana. He said, don't you remember this? And he said, no. And there's a little wooden bowl there. And he said, don't you remember? And then he touches him. And we'll get to that later, the touch of the guru. And then it all comes flooding back. 
and he remembers the lifetimes that he had spent at his guru's feet. Just as Master said in one of my very favorite chapters in autobiography, years in my Master's Hermitage, you can just feel the bliss, the fulfillment, the resonance. Heart, there's one of those, that beautiful chant, heart to heart meeting, spirit and soul greeting. And Master says, not for the first time did the sun set, finding me seated at my guru's feet. And so this is an eternal relationship. God has ordained that this is how it will be. It, he, Master called the guru the spoken voice of silent God. God can't, or it's easier for us to ignore the silent voice of God. It's harder for us to ignore, to turn our back on the spoken voice of the guru. And so, so in one of Swamiji's great classic talks on the guru-disciple relationship, which is part of the lessons in discipleship, he uses the analogy of the guru. God is the great generator, and, but we are not wired yet to receive the incredible power that comes from the divine consciousness of God. And so we need, the guru is the transformer. It steps it down just a little bit so that we can receive it. We are able to receive that divine current and not get totally blown away. Once, I believe it was Dr. Lewis kept pestering master. Will you, won't you give me samadhi? Give me samadhi. Give me to samadhi. And finally, master just turned around and looked at him with that extraordinary divine power. And he said, could you take it if I gave it to you? And Dr. Lewis trembling, no, no, sir. No, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. <laughs> but the guru steps it down for us. It comes in a recognizable form. It comes in a form we can relate to, that we can love, that we can look in those eyes. I remember talking about the, not the Sri Yukteswar's eyes not having love in them. After the forest fire that burned down the community, um, we were living in a little bitty trailer, and it was not an easy time rebuilding the community from nothing. But there had been a big triangular-shaped uh, painting of Sri Yukteswar that had been in uh, one of the, temp the buildings that burnt down, and it had been rescued. So we had it in our in our little trailer. It sort of dominated, took up most of the little trailer, but there it was, and it was perfect because you know you walked in and oh God, what a bad day, and what you know, and then you saw Sri Yukteswar, and he just said, <laughs> "Get it together." <laughs> and after times change, I moved it out. <laughs> I much preferred looking at Master's eyes than Sri Yukteswar. But nevertheless, the guru comes to us in a form that we can relate to. In that beautiful, beautiful ch uh, chapter in the Bhagavad Gita, which, as Jyotish says, it's just a section of the great epic, the Mahabharata, the great light. And the Gita, Bhagavad Gita means the song of God. And it's a dialogue the eternal dialogue between the guru in this form, in this time, Babaji, Krishna, and the disciple, Arjuna, 
who Master told us he was in that lifetime. So the, the disciple is asking the guru, tell me, tell me the nature of truth. Tell me the nature of my soul. Tell me what is the purpose of life? What is the nature of right action? How do we find freedom? Every single question the devotee, the disciple can ask is in there. And Swamiji in his wonderful, uh, as the interpretations of the Bhagavad Gita based uh, on um, the essence of the Bhagavad Gita based on Master's commentary, says that Arjuna is disciple every man. He speaks for all of us. But there's one chapter in there where, because in the story, Arjuna and Krishna are cousins. And they're not, and also uh, Krishna is. Arjuna's charioteer, because when he said, I choose, as Jyotish was telling the story, he said, I give up all the accoutrements of war. I just want you. And then Krishna said, very well, but I will be your charioteer. I will drive your chariot, but I will not lift a hand in this battle. What that means, the chariot with the five white horses is the chariot of our senses. And the guru controls that, and he holds them stable, and he wins our way through the battle of life to victory. And that's the story of the Gita. And it's thrilling to read it, but in this one chapter, they've been through so much together, Krishna and Arjuna. But in this one chapter, Arjuna asks him, he says, my Lord, grant me, if I am worthy, the vision of thy cosmic being. And then everything breaks loose. And he sees Arjuna, his consciousness begins expanding. And he sees him not as his cousin, not as the prince, not as the charioteer, but as the cosmic consciousness, thousands of arms doing all of creation and destruction and thousands of heads, symbolic of cosmic consciousness. And it gets bigger and bigger. And it said Arjuna's hair stood on end and his flesh was quivering. And finally he falls on his knees and he says, my Lord, I cannot take this vision anymore return to me in my beloved form of my friend. And he does. And that's how the guru comes to us. He knows we cannot sustain the cosmic, impersonal, universal, infinite presence of God. So he comes down in a way we can relate to. And then Arjuna touches his feet and he said, oh, my Lord, forgive me. If in moments of friendship and relaxation I've ever said anything to you that was casual or flippant, and, and Krishna just blesses him. But we need to remember that. And that's what Swamiji has done with us. He's let us play. He's let us play these games of little joking and fun and teasing and laughing, but always behind. We need to understand the divine consciousness that, in, that is our friend, that wants to play with us, that wants to just have fun in this world, but is always guiding our mind. So this eternal, eternal nature, I will never give up. There's a beautiful poem. We can turn away from the guru. He will never turn away from us. We can denounce him. He will never stop loving us. We can no matter what we do, 
My love for you is eternal. The guru promises us. And if, if there was a song that when in the first year, there was a very nice young devotee who lived here, and he was kind of a folk songwriter. And, but the one song from all those many years stayed in my mind because I felt it captured so much. At last, the weary seagull has found a place to rest. Thank God, the captain's at the wheel. And I thought, that's it. The weary seagull of our soul, which is fighting against the storms of life, in the shelter of the guru, it has found a place to rest. Thank God the divine captain has brought our little soul consciousness to that safe haven. And how does the guru work? Well, in part, how does he change us? There's by the touch. The t and the touch of the guru, what does that represent? It represents the flowing forth of divine consciousness. And again, it's modeled for us in autobiography when, again, it's the play of the guru and disciple, Sri Teshwar and Master, even though they both were avatars. But remember in this drama, which of course is only for our benefit, when Master said he was meditating in his guru's ashram, but his mind was restless like leaves in autumn time, going around, you know, swirling. And Shri Teshwar calls him down, Mukunda, come down. And, he, and Master gets a little self-righteous. It's all a play for us. And he said, but I'm meditating, Master. And Shri Teshwar says, I know how you are meditating. Come down. <laughs> and, and kind of, you know, shame-faced Master came down. But then it was the moment, the God-ordained moment that we wait for, each of us. For Master, it happened long ago, but in that story, so it seems, the God-ordained moment when the guru taps him on the chest, and he began to go into cosmic consciousness. He felt his all he could see 360 degrees all around him. He felt his consciousness going out and out and out. And he realized that all he was was tissues of bliss. That's all he was. The touch of the guru, it's really a symbolic thing for that moment when the guru, the channel for God, realizes you are ready. And they open up the last little doors of resistance and the soul is free. So the touch of the guru, but also as well as that, the guru can understand all the, as Jyotish was saying, the labyrinthine maze of our minds. I remember so vividly many years ago at one of the first Kriya initiations I attended in the early 70s, and Swamiji was giving it then. And during the initiation, you go up and you receive the touch of the guru through the channel, the Kriyacharya, who's giving the initiation. And afterwards, Swamiji said, I had the most amazing experience during that blessing. He said, as I touched each one of you as you came up, I could feel the unique way that you would find freedom. He said, it was thrilling to me. And it was different for each one of you. 
And the guru knows that. And so for some of us, he says, you should write a book. For some of us, he says, you should work in the garden. For some of us, says, you should marry and have children. For some, he said, you should be uh, a strict monastic. It's different for each one. And the guru knows what we need to unlock what, to fulfill our karma. And so not to say, but I, I remember um, after the fire uh, that burnt everything down, the first thing Swami said to me afterwards when he saw me, he looked at me and he said, how are you, Davy? Well, that's good. And he walked away. And just as well, I didn't respond. But then some weeks later, he wrote a little note and he said, I'm so sorry for all the losses that you all have sustained, but always remember what God gives, we take. Not in a spirit of martyrdom, but in a spirit of, you know what you're doing, Master. And if I have to go through this, if I have to have cancer, if I have to have a painful divorce, if I lose all my money, whatever it might be, you know what you're doing, Master, and you're leading me forward. So the touch and the, the working with us as individuals and all of these things transform the consciousness and then they take on or ameliorate that karma. They understand it. There was, I just read the passage on this morning of uh, the Cable Ananda recounts from the autobiography where they're sitting with Babaji in front of a sacred fire ceremony and they're a fire, and they're about to do a Vedic ceremony. And then totally to the shock and horror of everyone, Babaji picks up a burning branch and touches one of the disciples on the shoulder and causes a big burn. And everyone said, Master, how cruel. How can you do this? And he said, would you rather see him die by a fiery death than just take on this little bit of suffering? And then he put his hand on it and healed it, and it was completely gone. But remember, and I have seen it in my own life. I have seen it in the life of hundreds and hundreds of people who are on the path. Something's coming to you, whatever it might be, it looks like a disaster, but somehow the guru transforms it, and it's a little touch, and then he heals it. So the guru changes us by seeing our karma, giving us the power to live through it, and then taking on great parts of it on himself. In the last years of Yogananda's life, his legs were entirely paralyzed. He couldn't walk. They had to carry him. And he, was in, he said, I could see demons like in different shapes, like little corkscrews, just del delving their way into the flesh of my legs. And, and, and he said, I'm taking on the karma of all the disciples. And so they take it on, and they transmute it, and they show us how to get through it. But now we come. So the, this is eternal. This is something that doesn't change with time. But now we find ourselves, as we've been talking about all week, here we are in Dwapara Yuga, this age of energy. And there's, I feel the guru-disciple relationship is expressed differently in Dwapara Yuga. There's a story from the Mahabharata, I believe it is, of a young disciple, excuse me, it's not from the Mahabharata, it's just a story 
of guru-disciple relationship. And this young Chela disciple comes to the guru and he said, will you give me diksha? Will you give me the touch and mantra? And because he's of a low caste, the Brahmin guru said, I can't accept you. And he tells, tells him to leave the ashram. But this disciple is so dedicated that he knows this guru goes every day to the bathing ghat by the river. So he lays down on one of the steps, we can, like one of these steps here that lead down to the river. And when the guru is coming down in the early dawn and it's dark, he can't see clearly, he, he steps on this body, which is the chela, and that's his diksha. And then he says, look out, and that's his mantra. <laughs> And he just taking that diksha and that mantra, that young chela found God. Well, that's an example of discipleship, I would say, in either a higher age or a lower age. But in Dwapara Yuga, I don't think that's the model, however inspiring that is. Because the age we live in is a time of turbulence. It's a lot of energy, but not a lot of wisdom. We, Jyotish once described a situation where somebody was, had a lot of energy but not a lot of wisdom. He said, you know, they've got too big of a sail for their rudder. <laughs> and that's a good description of Dwapara Yuga. It's like we've got a lot of energy. There's another joke where the first officer comes to report to a captain of a ship and he said, sir, I have good news and bad news. And he said, well, first, give me the good news. Well, the good news is we're making very good time. We're ahead of schedule. Well, what's the bad news? We're lost. <laughs> and that's Dwapara Yuga. So how the way to, we, the kind of, the way the guru works with us in this age needs to be different because it's an age not of sitting, merging into God in quiet forest ashrams. We, it won't work in this time by and large. What we need to do is work with the energy of Dwapara Yuga. Master told Swamiji, your life is one of intense service and meditation. And that by extension describes all of Ananda. We need to be intensely active for God. And that's how we work with the energy. Otherwise it will go out into self-interest, into self uh, indulgence, all these things. But if we find meaningful, powerful ways that that energy goes through us, we can serve and use that strength to keep ourselves more and more vibrant, dynamic, but in a flow of God's grace, in a flow. And, you know, it's so beautiful when you watch all the people putting on Spiritual Renewal Week, the cooks in the kitchen. Those people are happy, and I hope you're listening to this, my dear friends, because they are in a flow. They're not thinking about themselves. And so the guru comes and he says, you must be intensely active to find God in this lifetime. And to help you along, I'll give you a world mission. So there's lots for everyone to do. And so we need to be intent, use that physical energy. We also need to use our minds. It's not a time where you just say, well, the guru says, the guru says, the guru says. Master explain things so that we as Westerners who have questioning minds will understand them and says, oh, I get it. I know why we need to do these things. I understand Kriya Yoga. I understand how it works. We had a visitor from India 
here in the earlier part of the week. He and his wife had to go back on Wednesday. But he said something that I thought was such an incredible observation about Ananda. He said, I have been to many ashrams in India, and only Ananda in America, but he said, I have never seen a situation <clears throat> that I have found at Ananda where the teacher, the spiritual teacher, Swamiji, has trained so many people to think creatively in expressing these teachings. Isn't that a wonderful thought? I mean, we don't know because that's just how we've all been trained. He said, in most ashrams, all they do is repeat, repeat what's been said. And so we need to think it through on our own and express it from our own hearts. That's why when Swamiji asked, uh, Master said to Swamiji, uh, your, li uh, your life work is editing, writing, and lecturing. And with regard to writing, Swamiji said, oh, but Master, haven't you written everything that needs to be said? And he said, don't say that. Much more needs to be done. And why? Because it is our blessing to let those thoughts come through us and to understand them and to share them with others. If you want to understand something, Try teaching it to somebody else, and then you get it, because you can't be mushy in your thinking. So be active in this age of Dwapara Yuga. Use your mind clearly and effectively to accomplish what you want to do and to share these teachings. Don't be passive. Master is an avatar of strength, a warrior. And then finally, in this age, of turbulence, where, as Swamiji has said so brilliantly, the old forms of Kali Yuga, of religion and political systems, are being invigorated by the new energy of Dwapar Yuga. And that's why we find ourselves in such a mess right now. Those old religious ways of thinking, you're different from me, I hate you, I'll blow you up, this is my country, this is not your country, All, right now, and it won't go on forever, but right now, those old forms are being invigorated by the new energy. And so they seem like, wow, we have something going here. But they don't, because they're not, that energy moving through them will ultimately dissolve them, because they're based on a lower kind of consciousness. And so in this age of turbulence, the guru comes to us how Master came as a prem avatar an incarnation of love. And that's what we need to carry forth no matter what. Be active, be dynamic, be clear thinking. But first and foremost, let that love flow through. We live in an age of rationality, of technical domination, of separation and dominance. These will dissolve before the power of the guru as a prem avatar. And so he came at this time to give us these ways of being a disciple in Dwapara Yuga and to find freedom. And just as Swamiji said when he was traveling across the country after reading Autobiography of a Yogi, he had two desires, to know God and to share him with all. That is Ananda's mission. And our guru will give us the strength and the vision, each one of us who comes to him sincerely, to accomplish those goals.
Truth that we're all one. 
us to find in every hour, in every thought, in every flower, a joy that spans eternity, a truth that makes us ever free. joy fill our days. Oh, Master, may thy wisdom guide our ways. Oh, Master, may thy joy